there, folks, and welcome to the Europolex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy, and with me is my very good friend and colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing this week? Hi. Yeah, I'm all good, thanks. It's a weird time. We've had sort of a day of sorrow in my household. My partner's Argentinian because mm. <laughs> um, of El Diego. Um, yeah, so a lot of a lot of overwhelming things happening still. But um, but yeah, I'm 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 doing well. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Thanks. Things definitely staying busy, feeling busier than ever. And I suppose that's just this season, right? It's uh, whether it's uh, Thanksgiving or Hanukkah or Christmas or uh, whatever it is that you're celebrating at the moment, things feel very busy. Yeah. And you're just trying to, it's the timing. You're just trying to cram everything uh, into the last sort of month or whatever of the year. Um, and then on top of that, it's just so many overwhelming things happening. Um, but yeah. Um, lots to talk about for us, at least. Yes, absolutely. After a quick break last week, which I'm sure you all noticed and missed us very much for, um, we're back with a really busy episode, as always, where we've got an interview with American political scientist Ryan Carlin, who's going to help us understand how to read government popularity ratings and executive approval. In addition to that, uh, Gabriel, you're going to be chatting to uh, Europlex Romanian correspondent uh, André McClay, about upcoming parliamentary elections in Romania, in both houses of the National Parliament. Indeed. And on top of that, if that wasn't enough, we're going to be taking another trip back to History Corner to look back in time to 1990 and the newly reunified German federal elections. First, Gabriel, here you've got some news for us. Yes, um, it's just the EU budget. <laughs> uh, so in, in institutional news, tensions have risen between EU states and an alliance between Poland and Hungary to block the EU budget agreed by um, European leaders. Um, the two countries are using their um, vetoes to resist moves by other member states to introduce a rule of law mechanism tied to certain EU funds, uh, which would prevent countries accused of rule violations from receiving investment. Both Warsaw and Budapest believe these new regulations have been designed to target both their right-wing populist governments, uh, who have received criticism um, in recent months, but um, for a long time as well, um, for, for their attitude toward constitutional norms um, and the relationship between the government and the judiciary system. Tensions rose within discussions when members voted to add rule of law functions to the plans by a qualified majority in the European Council, um, resulting in these countries then vetoing the entire budget outright um, to stop their introduction. As you'll know, this euro budget is 1.1 trillion euros, and it comes with a 750 billion euro boost for COVID recovery funds, um, with that total figure to be spent over the next seven years. So obviously it's a uh, momentous budget, um, really key for so many different issues in countries, um, and then we now have this deadlock. Um, so we'll keep you updated on how that goes. Yeah, absolutely. A really interesting uh, piece of EU institutional news, if that's what you're interested in, which we are. And keeping on with the EU, after the nomination of Irish Fine Gael's former Vice President of the European Parliament, Maria Beginnis, to the EU Trade Commissioner position to replace Phil Hogan, you'll remember, who resigned over Golfgate, um, Roberta Mezzola, a Maltese MEP from the centre-right Nationalist Party, was chosen to take up the vacant vice presidency role in the European Transnational Assembly, the European Parliament. Mezzola is a 41-year-old lawyer who graduated from the University of Malta and the College of Europe, which is a common thing for senior European leaders, with an active political participation since her student years, both in national and European politics. She was first elected as MEP in 2013 and has worked and coordinated with several parliamentary committees and delegations in the EU over the years, including the Committee on Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs, one of the European Union's most powerful committees, the Delegation for Relations with Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Serbia, Montenegro and Kosovo. And if that wasn't enough, she's also served on the Committee of Inquiry into Money Laundering, Tax Avoidance and Tax Evasion, which had an active role in the investigation of the Panama Papers leaked stratagem. Meanwhile, to replace Marianne McGuinness as an MEP, Fine Gael her party in Ireland have nominated a local politician called Cole Markey to take up her seat in the European Parliament. So um, we might as well just continue with more EU institutional news, <laughs> I'd say. Um, and this Thursday, the European Parliament voted by 468 to 194 um, to approve a resolution criticising aspects of the 2019 European Parliament election and outlining proposals for reform ahead of 
uh, ahead of the coming ones in um, 2024. Most significantly, the resolution confirmed the failure of the Spitzen Kandidaten system, which was intended to provide a link between the EU and European electorate by providing candidates from each European Parliament grouping to be the next president of the European Commission in advance of the election um, to make it more similar, I guess, in the minds of people uh, to most national elections. Um, under the system, the European People's Party candidate, Manfred Weber, should have become commission president. But after lengthy negotiations, the position instead went to Ursula von der Leyen, which broke the principle that votes should have direct input in selecting the next commission president. So basically, all that was decided on, um, but wasn't followed in the end. So as a result, the parliament has called for the Spitzenkandidaten process to be reformed so that voters in every European member state have the opportunity to vote for their preferred commission president candidate. Um, although fell short of proposing a specific mechanism for implementing this proposal. The resolution also raises the possibility of transitional lists in future European Parliament elections, replacing the current system dominated by national parties in the member states. Um, these questions of institutional reform in the European Union will likely be discussed further at the upcoming conference on the future of Europe, which is intended to have concluded by the next European Parliament election in 2024. Um, so yeah, stay posted for more developments in this space. Yeah, and the Parliament also called for a move towards votes at 16 across the entire European Union, something which is only currently practiced in a couple of member states. Yeah. Pretty big talk from the European Parliament this week. Moving away from institutional news, we go outside the EU to the former Soviet state of Moldova, where the country held their fourth ever presidential elections. Around one and a half million Moldovans turned out to vote on whether to re-elect independent incumbent Igor Dodon, affiliated with the left-wing Russophilic Party of Socialists of the Republic of Moldova, as the president. The first round on the 1st of November saw Dodon, a former economic minister, receiving 32% of the vote, just four points behind centre-right pro-EU challenger Maya Sandu, who came second in the 2016 election and briefly served as prime minister in 2019. The third place candidate on 16.9% was Renato Usutai, who's a mayor of Moldova's second city, Balti, who ran an anti-establishment campaign. The two top-rated candidates progressed onto the second round of the election on the 15th of November, an exact repeat of the 2016 election, but with the big difference this time that Maya Sandu won. She beat Dodon 58-42 to become the first woman to ever be president of the country. Pro-Europeans in Moldova have seen this as a vote of confidence on their movement, as Russian President Vladimir Putin had expressly endorsed Igor Dodon in a country which is currently seeing a battle between pro-Russia and pro-EU voices. Yes, so uh, we're going to stay outside the EU for the next story as well, and um, it's regarding local elections in Bosnia. So during our well-deserved break, Bosnia and Herzegovina also had elections. There have been local elections across the 143 municipalities of the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina and the Republika Srpska, the two entities that constitute the Balkan country that most of you will know as Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, the results um, have been mixed um, at best for the three ruling ethnic parties, with the centre-right SDA losing in three out of the four municipalities in the capital city of Sarajevo, and ending up with seven fewer mayors than we had in 2016 when the last elections were held, uh, down to just 25. The right-wing SNSD managed to elect 41 mayors, which was nine more than 2016, so a success for them, but it also lost its stronghold of Banja Luka, uh, a municipality they've held um, for the last two decades. Um, the centre-right, HD said, party ended up with 20 mayors, which is one more than 2016. Uh, but they were also defeated in Prozorama uh, and other municipalities. Um, they're majority Croatian, so quite a mixed picture. Uh, it's obviously too early to tell what effect these elections results will have on the national stage. That's always the case with local elections in most systems. Um, and Often that's also down to low turnout. Uh, this time it was around 50%, which points to them being a second order election that has been used to punish and protest the ruling parties and not really um, pushing any significant shifts of the political system um, nationally. Another thing worth noting is that while a gender quota of 40% was applied to the candidate lists, only seven of the 143 newly elected mayors uh, in the country are women. Wow, that's a bad ratio. Yeah, not a good, not a nice ratio. Wow. Moving across to, well, half in, half out of the EU, in the Balkans, North Macedonia has 
been hoping to start its EU membership talks, but has been blocked again by its neighbour due to disputes over history and language. And if you were guessing the neighbour that had blocked them to be Greece, you're going to be wrong this time. It's now Bulgaria's turn to stop North Macedonia from joining the EU. The two countries have been negotiating and going back and forth over an array of historical issues, but to no avail so far. This might not be the last setback in the EU's enlargement plans in the area, with countries like the Netherlands not being completely satisfied with Albania's process. And with EU governments having coupled the two candidate countries together through the whole process, it could lead to some serious roadblocks in the coming months. Now to uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So it's been more than two weeks now since the latest ceasefire deal between Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan in regards to the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region was brokered. Um, with Armenia um, agreeing to hand over chunks of land of the disputed area to Azerbaijan. Uh, this has led in, in recent weeks to thousands, tens of thousands of Armenians fleeing to Armenian towns and villages across this new border. Um, and there have been images, I'm sure a lot of you have seen in the media, of people um, burning their homes and taking everything they have with them uh, to leave as little as possible for um, for the new settlers. Um, other European nations have been very much involved in the resolution of this latest military flare in the Caucasus. Um, it's sort of been a low intensive conflict um, since the 90s when it was last um, as violent as it was um, up until a month ago, um, with Turkey being accused of assisting um, the Azerbaijani military and Vladimir Putin um, of Russia playing a very key role in the negotiation of the ceasefire and being very... Um, keen um, to to act as the broker. Um, this week also the French Senate voted to recognize Nagorno-Karabakh as a region by um, a large majority, um, which has sort of predictably led to protests outside the French embassy in Azerbaijan's capital city of Baku. So I guess we should state that that was a symbolic vote put to the Senate um, and not something that's legally binding for France, but still a big statement i guess yeah a lot of european countries and european leaders have been incredibly sluggish to respond to the conflict not wanting to get involved one that like you say has been going on for quite a long time yeah our final political story of this week comes from lithuania where the newly elected lithuanian parliament formally approved the leader of the homeland union party ingrida simonita as the country's new prime minister some of the ruling party's MPs were absent due to self-isolation, and so only 62 of the 141 representatives voted to affirm her as the new leader, with 10 voting actively against and 41 abstaining. As we've reported previously, centre-right Homeland Union became the largest party with a comfortable margin in the two rounds of elections held back in October, gaining 19 seats. It is now forming a majority coalition government alongside two liberal parties, the Freedom Party and the Liberal Movement. But stay tuned for more Eastern European content coming from Romania this time, where both houses of the National Parliament are holding elections. And Andrei is going to be talking to my very good friend, Gabriel. Yes, stay tuned. Um, and later on in the episode, um, our colleague Matthew is going to take us back to Germany in 1990. Obviously, a very um, exciting, interesting uh, moment uh, in the country's history um, for this week's History Corner. Um, and as you and you mentioned at the start, you've also spoken to um, Ryan Carlin, um, the American political scientist. So yeah, stay tuned for all of that. everyone. So while we're nearing the end of 2020, which I think most people will be quite thankful for, um, Europe still hasn't seen its last national elections yet, believe it or not. So on December 6th, millions of Romanians will be heading out to vote for their representatives in the country's Senate um, and Chamber of Deputies. Um, our Europolex colleague, Andre Miklia, um, is on the line with me today uh, to give me and all of you a crash course in Romanian electoral politics and what these elections um, have in store. Hi, Andre, you're dialing in from Lyon, if I'm correct. Hello. Thank you for coming uh, on the podcast. So um, I thought to start, we can go back to four years ago, which were, were the last elections in Romania, uh, which, if I'm correct, that election was quite momentous in it being a disintegration of a very successful big tent alliance in Romania between the center-left 
and the center-right. And a slew of new parties emerged from the, those elections as well, creating sort of a new landscape. However, the clear winner in 2016 uh, was the Social Democratic Party that we can all guess is a center-left party, uh, like elsewhere in Europe, that got around 45% of the votes, which for European standards is um, quite a good result. But since then, there have been so many twists and turns. There have been, if I'm correct, three different government cabinets since the original one formed then. Um, so I just thought, can you just give us a very quick overview of the chaos of Romanian politics since 2016? Uh, yes, sure. So in 2016 was a huge PSD victory. Um, and after that, the first thing that they did in power was to change the judiciary law. And that generated a lot of uh, protest, a lot of outrage from a lot of people in Romania, and there were the biggest, in 2017, were the biggest protests in Romanian history since the revolution. And after that, uh, in, inside the party, began a big fight between the hardliners, which wanted to modify the judi judiciary law and to stop the anti-corruption fight, and the people who were more like, uh, wanted to keep the anti-corruption fight. And that led to three prime ministers and the former leader of the party, Liviu Dragnea, which was uh, uh, sentenced to three years for corruption and is now currently in jail. And since uh, last uh, November, the PSD and their uh, allies in the parliament lost the majority and the new government emerged in, with uh, Ludovic Orban. So, yeah, so it's always quite important, obviously, what who's in government going into an election. So as you say, it's Ludovic Orban, leader of National Liberal Party, which um, is a center-right party, if I'm correct still, sitting with the European People's Party in the EU Parliament. So what can you tell us about them as a party and what um, they're campaigning on this year? Is it mostly still going after on the corruption issues or is there any other sort of political project that they're pushing? They are a classic Christian Democratic Party, like uh, CDU in Germany, and they, they, are, they are campaigning currently uh, with, uh, they are promising big infrastructure projects, like a lot of new highways, a lot of railways, a lot of uh, new hospitals, stuff like that, and uh, yeah, they want to put a lot of money in the infrastructure, and they want to invest more. When it comes to anti-corruption, the National Liberal Party is kind of in the middle. They aren't like uh, the formal PSD. They don't want to stop the fight, but uh, they are in the middle because they have a lot of problems with corruption themselves. A lot of former ministers, a lot of former leaders had uh, problems with corruption. Even the current prime minister had some uh, judiciary problems. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite classic, isn't it, in systems where there is quite a lot of corruption. It, it's hard even for the one's opposition to go too hard because it'll just come back to bite them, I guess. Um, but still, since the last elections, the National Liberal Party, they've, they, they have grown. So in 2016, they got around 20% um, of the vote, and in our latest polling average, they're up um, at 32%, so it's looking quite likely they'll be the biggest party. Um, does this mean we can expect um, the National Liberal Party to remain in power? Uh, yes, it will be almost impossible to make a government without them, because uh, PSD will not make a government with Save Romania Union, USR, because uh, the two parties are very different and they don't get along at all. <laughs> So the most likely outcome, it will be a National Liberal Party government with uh, Save Romania Union. But that's not what uh, the hardliners for, uh, from uh, the National Liberal Party want, because they want the current status. They would like to have a minority government supported by other smaller parties in the parliament without uh, the Save Romania Union, because Save Romania Union, they are very reformist, they are very more progressist than them, and uh, they they like to maintain the status quo in their in Romanian politics. So I guess we can back zoom out a little bit then and talk about Save Romania Union. So as you say, they're they're the third force in Romanian politics. 
they're polling at around 15%, which is quite good for them compared to, to previous results. Um, I know they sort of started out as a local political movement in Bucharest, but can you just describe their origins and their profile? You say they're very progressive, liberal. Yes, uh, the party was created for uh, maintaining mostly the anti-corruption fight. Yeah, the party was created in Bucharest and then was extending nationwide. They uh, received uh, very good results last year in the European elections when they got 23%, and they are expected to get more than 20 this year, even if the pools, some pools, pooling companies are uh, under underestimated them. Uh, their main uh, focuses are uh, to maintain the anti-corruption fight and to strengthen it because it was uh, weakened uh, in the last four years. Also, they want to change Romania to make a lot of reforms because uh, our uh, current political system is very centralized. When a party comes in power, they change everything. They change the, the managers of a hospital, they change everything. And they want to depoliticize the state, make a lot of reforms also in the, in the education system. They want to change the health system and they want to also invest more money in infrastructure like uh, the National Liberal Party. Interesting. So if I'm understanding correctly, um, it's looking likely that the National Liberal Party will be the dominant force in a future government. But what will be interesting to follow after the elections will be what role Save Romania Union will play in Parliament as a strengthened force. Is that a correct depiction? Uh, mostly yes, but the Save Romania Union wants in government. They will not accept to back the Orban gov government only from Parliament. They want to have uh, ministers, a couple of them. Their most important target is the Minister of Justice. And uh, they on, uh, accept only backing the, uh, the National Liberal Party government from, uh, from the parliament. Yeah, that's really interesting. Just for our viewers, I believe even in 2016, which was obviously a quote-unquote normal year, not even a coronavirus year, I believe turnout was just around 40%, so it's very low anyway. But this year, it probably will be even lower. Yes, it will most likely be even lower because in, 20, in 2016, it was like 38%. Uh, this year at the local elections, which we had in September, was again uh, lower than 40% or around 40%. We are expecting even lower turnout because we have a lot of cities in lockdown. We have a lot of corona um, restrictions and we are expecting that the older people will not go to the vote. And that will mostly affect uh, the Social Democrats and the National Liberal Party. So there, there is some room for, uh, for surprises, but not, not uh, very big ones. So how come turnout is so low in Romania? I mean, 40% is quite depressing <laughs> from a democratic point of view. How come it is so low and has it been that low for a long time? Uh, that's mostly because a lot of people uh, don't like the politics. They all say that uh, all, are, all are the same, all the politicians are the same, all of them are stealing because we had a lot of governments from different parties and they were like uh, bad and they uh, didn't do much. And uh, on another point is that we have a very big diaspora. So on paper, we are like uh, almost 20 million Romanians. But from that 20 million, at least 5 million are living in Western Europe or all over the world. And uh, they don't go to vote. And uh, basically, yeah, 40%, it may, it may sound very low. But in reality, if you take only the people which are living in Romania, they are most likely under uh, 50 million people, that will be much higher. To summarize it, it's because uh, a lot of people... Uh, don't care about political uh, life in Romania and because we have a very big diaspora. So I guess before wrapping up, I don't know, in terms of this campaign, are there any big sorts of events uh, in, recent, in the recent week or so that's impacting uh, sort of the news reporting and consciousness around this or... How would you sort of depict these, this last stretch of, of campaigning ahead of next weekend? 
it was a very weird campaign because the, every day we were uh, they were talking at the TV only about Corona and how the new infections are going up, how uh, we should uh, handle it and uh, stuff like that. But in uh, recent weeks, the National Liberal Party had a lot of problems. For example, uh, a lot of uh, former uh, social democrats switched parties, uh, switched parties from the Social Democratic Party to join the National Liberal Party. Because in Romania, they don't care about the orientation. They don't, uh, it doesn't matter. They, a lot of people, a lot of politicians, they are switching parties. If a party goes, party goes to opposition, they are just going to join the party in power. So there were a lot of scandals in the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, the, the Save Romania Union has strongly attacked uh, the National Liberal Party because of it. And we also had uh, an incident in a big Romanian city where the intensive care unit for COVID patients has uh, burned and 12 people have burned alive. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, of course, the National Liberal Party has accused the Social Democrats because they are in power in that uh, county, in that city. But the Social Democrats has accused the National Liberal Party because they are in power now in Bucharest. And the uh, Save Romania Union has accused both parties for the current disaster. But one thing I also thought I want, I was just curious about was in Romania you have a, a, a bicameral system. So these elections will be both for the Chamber of Deputies um, and the Senate. So I was also just curious um, to learn a bit about the Senate elections. What is the role of the Senate in Romania? Is there anything to look out for there? Not quite. They are very similar. When you're comparing the bicameral system from Romania to the bicameral system from Poland, or Czech Republic, or France, they are way different. It's just the second chamber. For example, we are vote, our electoral system is to vote on the list, on lists. So for example, everyone which is voting uh, for the list of chamber of deputies for the National Liberal Party will vote to the Senate for the National Liberal Party. So they, a party will get the same amount Almost, or let's say uh, almost the same amount of percentages for the Chamber of Deputies and for the Senate. Well, thank you so much, um, Andre, for coming um, to the Europe Elects podcast and talking us through these elections ahead of next week. Um, obviously, we'll be reporting on the results as they come in and any polls that, that might um, be published until then. And we'll be sure to discuss the, the fallout on, on upcoming podcasts too. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. Hello everyone, I'm Matthew Nicholson, and I'm here once again with another entry of the Europe Alex History Corner. This week we are looking back 30 years to Germany, in December 1990. The Berlin Wall had fallen one year previously, ending 28 years of separation between the Democratic West and the Communist East. The one-party Communist regime in East Germany had collapsed, and elections back in March had produced a grand coalition, including the centre-right Christian Democratic Union, and the centre-left Social Democratic Party, which worked towards the country's reunification. Germany was reunified on the 3rd of October 1990, in effect an enlargement of West Germany, or the Federal Republic of Germany. As a result, the government of West Germany, consisting of a coalition between the Christian Democratic Union, the centre-right Christian Social Union, and the Liberal Free Democratic Party, assumed authority over the former East Germany. On the 3rd of December 1990, a national parliamentary federal election was held in the newly reunified Germany. This was the first free election held in the United Germany for almost 60 years, the last being in 1932 before the Nazi seizure of power. 
143 additional seats were added to the national parliament to account for the additional representatives from East Germany. And to ensure full representation for both East and West, the 5% threshold required for gaining seats was applied separately for each half of the country, though this would revert to a single nationwide threshold in subsequent elections. Helmut Kohl, who had served as Chancellor of West Germany since 1982 and for the last month as Chancellor of the Unified Country, sought a third full term in office after only narrowly winning re-election in 1987. Kohl campaigned on his record of successfully overseeing the country's reunification and emphasised an optimistic, patriotic message. He was challenged by Minister-President of Saarland, Oskar Lafontaine of the Social Democrats, a figure on the left of the party who emphasised social and environmental policies in an attempt to win over Green Party voters. The Social Democrats also cast a gloomier emphasis over reunification, warning about the economic costs it would bring, uh, going somewhat against the jubilant mood of the country. During the campaign, Lafontaine survived an assassination attempt in Cologne, where he suffered several injuries from a knife attack leaving him in a critical condition for several days. But the result was a clear victory for the incumbent government, which benefited from widespread goodwill for its role overseeing reunification. The governing parties achieved a combined 55% of the vote, as Kohl's Christian Democratic Union and Christian Social Union Alliance fell just 12 seats short of a majority in Parliament. In fact, the Union parties won a plurality in all but four states in the Northwest, sweeping the South, and winning 42% of the vote in the former East, which before the Second World War had been an area of strong social democratic support. The Christian Democrats proved especially popular with blue-collar workers living in industrial regions, who were also expected to have lent more towards the Social Democrats. Although the Union parties performed well, most gains actually went to the Free Democratic Party, which increased its share of the vote to 11%, and more than doubled its vote in the East from the elections earlier in the year, winning 78 seats in total. This gave the government a healthy majority in the new legislature. The Social Democratic Party remained the largest opposition party, but lost some ground in the popular vote, falling to 34% largely due to a decline in the West, and emerged with 239 seats. This was the worst performance for the Social Democrats since 1957, and marked a severe setback for the German opposition. But the election was especially disappointing for the left-wing Party of Democratic Socialism, the reincarnation of the Socialist Unity Party, which had dominated the East German Communist regime. The party won only 2% of the nationwide vote, a meagre 0.3% in the West, and fell to only 11% in the East, down from 16% in the East German election held back in March. Due to the split threshold, the party's Eastern votes allowed it to gain representation in Parliament with 17 seats, but it would only maintain a marginal presence. The election also produced disappointing results for the Greens, the only major West German party not to develop a unified platform in both the East and West. The Greens fell to 4% of the nationwide vote and lost all 44 of the seats they had secured in the last West German election. However, the newly formed Eastern party Alliance 90, comprised of former opposition movements in East Germany with links to the Green movement, was able to secure 6% of the vote in the East and thereby gained 8 seats in the national parliament. The two parties would ultimately merge to form Alliance 90 the Greens in 1993. These results provided Helmut Kohl a clear mandate to lead and shape the first years of a newly reunified country. He would continue as Chancellor for a further eight years, losing ground in the 1994 national parliament election and then losing power in 1998. The 1990 election confirmed Kohl's legacy as the Chancellor who oversaw and shaped German reunification and helped him to become the second longest serving Chancellor in German history surpassed only by Otto von Bismarck in the 19th century. Oskar Lafontaine would remain on the left of the Social Democratic Party before leaving the party in 2005 in protest towards some of its centrist labour policies. He would later become co-chairman of the Left Party, the successor party to the Party of Democratic Socialism, 30 years after competing against them in the 1990 national parliament election. Lafontaine remains active in politics today, serving as leader of the opposition in Saarland.
Europolex is, of course, run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors. And everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters, just like you. And if we want to do more, which we do, we need your support. So we've started sharing exclusive discussions and special content and votes on what we should contain in our coming podcasts, all on our Patreon channel. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month and support the work of Europolex. So don't miss out on all that good content and support us on Patreon. Hey folks, Ewan here, and we're really excited today to bring you a fascinating interview with Ryan Carlin, who's a professor at Georgia State University in the United States. He is an expert in government approval ratings, and yeah, fantastic to have him on the podcast. Now, uh, Europolex and the executive approval project, which Ryan is part of, um, are beginning a, a new data collaboration um, to look deeper at uh, important data around government, presidential, and prime ministerial approval um, across Europe. And that's, so that's looking beyond our usual data focus of parliamentary opinion and voting intention. Uh, Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ewan. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Um, we thought a really good way to introduce this to our listeners would be to just get together and unpack a little bit what's useful about approval ratings um, for political analysts, um, whether rookie or professional like yourself. Let's start really simple. What can executive approval tell us about national politics that parliamentary polling cannot? That's a great question and, and one that our project has thought about a lot. Um, in, in fact, Parliamentary polling um, and executive approval are related, but they're really in, in some ways uh, quite separate. When you ask about parliamentary polling, you're typically wondering, you know, who this, who people would uh, plan to vote for. And you typically ask some kind of question like, you know, if elections were coming on Sunday, uh, who would you vote for? And this, this Sunday question uh, does reveal a good bit about how citizens feel about their political executives, uh, namely, we think it talks. It speaks to some extent on to how uh, who they would prefer to head up the government. At the same time, it it also taps uh, into something about um, citizens' own political identities uh, or what we might consider partisanship. Um, one can argue that partisanship and these political identities are either essentially fixed during early socialization or they may be updated as a running tally, which seems to be the case, especially uh, in parliamentary systems. But we suspect that uh, they're probably a little bit more stable with changes only at the margins uh, over time. And uh, you know that's especially true in the more highly institutionalized uh, party systems. On the other hand, asking citizens whether they approve or disapprove of the executive is at heart an evaluative endeavor and when people answer these questions, um, these answers, answers to these questions are, are likely to vary a bit more than the standard Sunday question. And they, they may draw on partisan loyalties to some extent, but they're also likely to tap a little bit more deeply into performance considerations, asking people to evaluate how, what government's doing for them. Um, and they may also reflect, uh, to some extent, a larger concept of political support that was developed by David Easton a long time ago. Research has shown that both uh, executive approval and parliamentary polling, they, they exhibit electoral cyclicalities. Uh, for partisanship, um, you tend to see increased intensity as elections draw near. For executive approval, you see that elections kind of ramp up uh, a, a approval of the, of the sitting executive. Um, because they get more media attention. So you have cyclicalities in both, uh, but, but they, they are kind of different phenomena. And so they're really telling us something interesting. I also think that perhaps less explored is what uh, disapproval means, uh, especially in a time in which we're seeing uh, citizens reject parties en masse. Uh, so maybe disapproval is uh, maybe somewhat related to to uh, negative partisanship in which people ne don't necessarily approve of somebody, but they know who they disapprove of. 
I think that's a really interesting uh, way of considering it, so drawing out what you've just said about the the way that the executive approval question forces the sort of Sunday question, all the issues around policy, all the issues around partisanship, uh, political identity through a single prism of, of conversation, which is whether you approve or disapprove of the current government as it is now, it, it sort of forces a, a contemporary and a sort of um, utopian understanding of political policy into a single question, which I think is a really interesting way of considering what uh, goes through people's heads when they decide the answer to this question. Absolutely. And it, it doesn't require citizens to think through the possible coalitions that may form either before or after elections. It's simply a kind of an ongoing referendum on the executive or the government more generally. I just want to pick up something you said at the end of the previous answer about negative approval. I mean, it does feel like all around the world and in every country, people just simply don't like their government. Is that the case? That is hard to uh, answer with one fell swoop, but I actually don't think that is the case. Um, I feel like that is a common sentiment as we sit here in highly polarized countries, but not every country is polarized. Uh, and in fact, something that we found really interesting through the study of executive approval is that there are some places in which there is a kind of a chronic you know, disapproval or lack of approval of the president, but there are other countries where there's generally high approval of executives. Um, for example, you know, and I'm talking about the pre-COVID era essentially here, um, but in the part of the world that I know best, which is Latin America, we see that on average presidents in Mexico, Colombia, Uruguay, and El Salvador have been widely popular through most of this century. There are, of course, these other cases where there's just, you know, presidents just can't seem to get traction. And the most puzzling one is one that's actually been in the news recently, which is Peru. And mm -hmm. since the mid-1990s, uh, they have had no president that's probably been over 30% approval for very long. And, and now, ironically, they finally have a president who is very, very popular, and they've impeached him. Uh, so, so and this is in a country where the economy has been growing above 10% for uh, a handful of years, you know, a handful, almost two decades. So some, some, some cases like that really make us scratch our head, but I think what we learned from, from those places is that where there is kind of chronic disapproval, maybe there's something else wrong politically. Not wrong, but there's some, there's a political explanation for that, and that would include, in this case, there's absolutely no party system. The party system's totally chaotic. There is no strong floor under which approval, uh, you know, sort of fails to drop, as we see in the United States. There is definitely a, a floor for, for, for President Trump, uh, but that's not the case uh, in a place where parties come and go. And so, um, I wouldn't say that, that, that everybody dislikes their executive. Uh, I, I would actually say that there's surprisingly many cases where, where the executives are really, really popular. I'm interested in the determinants of executive approval that you've been talking about there. You know, and, and some of them, for example, in Peru, some might, might be slightly more confusing, but looking at things like um, you know, partisanship um, and economy and other things like that. Do you think there are any things that you would say, you know, you can see across the world, which are like overriding determinants of, of partisan approval? You know, is it as simple as when the economy gets better, government approval goes up? The only thing that I would say over that, that I've seen everywhere work is this electoral cycle, which is completely in some ways atheoretic. We just know that there's a very strong cycle from elections where that generates a high watermark of approval. We see this in both parliamentary and presidential systems. And that, that decline happens invariably, and usually it comes up at the end. Beyond that, we're really um, at a point now with this executive approval project that we can start to answer these questions. Uh, in fact, we know let me just quickly address partisanship. We know, in fact, that all information, uh, if you're a strong partisan, you're going you're gonna to filter all information through a partisan lens. We know that is true, and that's been true for a long time. That doesn't seem to uh, wash out these, these dynamics, these cyclical dynamics. It also doesn't seem to totally wash out 
uh, the role of the economy. Now, of course, there's a massive literature on economic voting that will kind of make these very <clears throat> broad statements. You know, when the economy booms, the president's popular or the prime minister's popular. And you know, you read these these things, and it just sounds like the law of gravity. We actually don't think that's necessarily true. And in fact, as we've uh, studied this beyond um, the advanced industrial world, we, we, we see there's a lot more variation in that. And even though, and, and it's true that even in the advanced industrial world, scholars had seen a lot of vari variation in this. They call this the instability problem of the, uh, of the, um, of the, of the popularity function. Uh, we've seen just a lot of that, and it kind of leads us to our next project, which we had begun um, before working, before COVID hit, we had already sort of been questioning about, does the economy matter as much anymore? Or are things like partisanship, like polarization, um, like globalization uh, coming in and, and sort of de-linking de the executive to some extent from economic out outputs. And so that's, I think, you know, something that still bears investigation and, and we're gonna still work on that, exactly how COVID fits into this, we're not sure, but, but that's still a question that, um, that we need to answer. Something a lot of uh, journalists and, and people have about uh, these questions is, is, is to do with comparability between countries. You know, we, we at Europe Alex and, and our colleagues at America Alex and uh, Asia Alex, you know, we are in the business of comparative polling. And while we know because of different partisan systems and, and different um, electoral systems, it's hard to compare, you know, parliamentary polling and rates of parliamentary polling in different countries just because of the nature of the different parliamentary systems. However, to what extent is is there a capability for comparison in government approval between countries? Do, do you think it's a useful tool or do you think there's there's too many competing issues that have a sway on the explicit approval ratings that means it's not that useful a tool to compare across borders? I think a, that's a great question. I, I would kind of counter with, you know, is it useful? It's not about if it's useful, but useful for what? My general sense is that you can actually compare fairly easily uh, across countries, given the regularities that we've kind of been discussing about the, the cycle of honeymoon decay and then a sort of election bump. So you can kind of, I, I think, quite easily compare. Uh, at the same time, e even those kind of simple comparisons uh, need to be adjusted for context. And I think here, and, and something that we've talked about before is, um, th that the constitutional design is often quite different. So as when you deal with in, in parliamentary polling but with electoral systems, I think what's important for executive approval is how, what is the mode, what is the democratic regime that is in place, right? So is this a presidential system that is um, meant to endow the leader with a large mandate, uh, something a, a close to a plurality, if not a majority of people voting for that person? that really cranks up a lot of uh, a lot of popularity at the beginning of their terms so that they can they can uh, be decisive in governing or is this a system of, like a parliamentary system which by design is trying to create uh, governments that are well liked that that have the confidence not only of the parliament but also of of the people and so those those differences matter so on average even though we see these cycles we do tend to see parliamentary systems producing more popular governments. And when they start to lose popularity, then of course we see, we see government instability and, and sometimes change. So I think we really need to keep in mind what kind of constitution is undergirding these systems uh, when we go to compare. That's really interesting. Just to finish up, this week we celebrated perhaps, or uh, depending on your political stance, uh, complained about the uh, that epic term, the anniversary of Angela Merkel's uh, role as German Chancellor. And I wondered if you could just speak a little bit to the role that, that sex or gender plays in the approval rating uh, scenario. Are people more inclined to like or dislike female leaders? That is a great question. We have looked into this to some extent more um, systematically in presidential systems, but what we find in the presidential system is that uh, the personification of the executive that you get by design, again, kind of makes 
uh, gender stereotypes more salient. And so what we find is on average, female presidents have lower, lower incoming levels of approval, shorter honeymoons, they drop to far lower levels than, than their male counterparts. And then when it comes to accountability for outcomes, we find that they are held equally accountable for the economy, but when it comes to, to terrorism or crime or corruption, they're punished to a much greater extent than their male counterparts. What we find in the parliamentary systems, um, this is work that's ongoing, but we actually see that the parliamentary systems filter out these stereotypes to some extent. And uh, females, if anything, are slightly more popular. Angela Merkel is a perfect example of this, but we see others that are salient, including uh, Jacinda Ardern and, and others that are, that are currently uh, serving. So we think that again, the constitutional design is sort of dominating even these, these gender differences, at least in the parliamentary systems where it's amplifying them in the presidential system. So uh, that, that's what we find. But I, I also think the, the broader question about different um, aspects or different characteristics of, of leaders and how that affects their approval ratings and accountability for outcomes. Those are, those are questions that are, are really important and that we can now begin to answer with, this, with these data. Thank you so much, Ryan. That's a really interesting, you know, thing to, to consider the importance of the system and the way that the system then interacts with our preconceptions um, or society's preconceptions about uh, what the role of men or women as our leaders should be. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're really, really excited for this partnership and the things it's going to do. Um, and there's going to be loads of information on our social media in the coming days, uh, dear listener, about what that's going to look like and the exciting things we've got coming up and it's ongoing so if there's a particular comparison uh listener that you'd like to see or something that you think executive approval could be really useful for when compared with parliamentary approval or something some sort of bridge between us just drop me an email podcast at europelex.eu would absolutely love to hear what you have to say about this issue or anything that we discuss on the podcast ryan thank you so much for coming on the podcast i'm sure we'll have you on again soon it's been a pleasure thank you ewan Thank you for listening to the EuropeLX podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at EuropeLX.eu um, and at EuropeLX across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at Europe underscore Lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karimpoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peñorios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kakouris and Guillaume Ferreira de Senda. The music was by Jose Alvarado. And everything we do couldn't be possible without our fantastic supporters on Patreon. That's it. We're good. <laughs>